everybody, and welcome to episode number 53, Confessions of a Market Maker. I'm your co-host, Ray, a.k.a. All Day Ray, a.k.a. The Sicilian Wyatt Earp. And I'm joined here by my quaint co-host, former market maker of 20 years and current day retail trader, a man who longs for the old days. So like a girl with a big butt, his best work is behind him. I am talking about the brown Tom Selleck. JJ, how's it going? Oh, good, brother. What's up? That's a new one. <laughs> <laughs> yes, man. And our guest today has had a trading career that has spanned over 30 years. A man who has managed assets from as little as several million dollars to as much as 600 million. A man who is now running his current CTA as a one-man shop. He's lived and traded from all areas of God's green earth, profiled in the Unknown Market Wizards book. I am talking about the contrarian Jason Shapiro. Jason, thanks for joining us. How's it going? Good. How you doing? Doing real good, man. You know, Jason, mo most people would have jumped at the chance to be in the Market Wizards book. Some even in the book had like reached out to Jack themselves. You were you initially turned it down a few times, I believe. What was the hesitation? Um, I just think it's bad karma, man. You know, I don't know uh, if you ever read Victor Niederhofer's first book, uh, Education of a Speculator. Love it. Um, I always thought, and this was before he blew out, but I always thought the conclusion of that book was like, if you're going to write a book, you better be prepared to blow out very quickly. Mm -hmm. And uh, he wrote a book and within a year he blew out. You know? yeah. It's just like one of those strange things. And as it turns out, just so you know, that book came out on November 1st. I haven't made a freaking dime since November 1st. Uh, my worst six week period I've had in probably five years. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So I shouldn't have been in the freaking book, but what are you going to do? I am already. So yeah, well, what are you gonna what's do? done is done. Yeah. Oh, uh, you know, we appreciate you doing it, man. It, it was yeah, your section. And, and I told you this is, this is not even though like bullshit. Like I, I enjoyed your section, uh, the most, uh, the most I resonated with. And, uh, what, what, what was your take? I don't know if you've read the book. I'm sure you've read the book. what do you think of the other traders in there? I actually have not read the book. You haven't. I read my chapter just to make sure that what was supposed to be in there was in there. Yeah. But uh, I got to be honest, I haven't read the book. Yeah. All right. Remind it to, <laughs> to the listeners, if you guys would like to trade alongside JJ and myself in a supportive community of traders, we trade futures, equities, and options. Join us at microefutures.com. Jason, uh, you described yourself in the book of being a, a bit of a troublemaker uh, in your youth. You got kicked out of high school. Uh, you were arrested in college. You didn't go to a prestigious college. Uh, you went to UCF. Uh, it's not always the uh, people with accomplished academic backgrounds that make the best traders, is it? No, I mean, clearly not. You know, it's not always people with the best academic backgrounds that make the best anything, right? Yeah, true. Um, I think in a way, in a certain way, I think that having a great academic background um, maybe works against you in some ways when it comes to training. Um, it's such a... You know, if you go to Harvard, it's because obviously you worked very hard in high school. You know, uh, you did the right thing. You studied, you did what you were supposed to do, and you were rewarded. You got into Harvard, you go to Harvard, you do the same thing. You work hard, you get good grades, you learn what you're supposed to learn, and uh, you get rewarded. You get a job, you know, working for some uh, Wall Street bank, and it works the same way there. You do what you're supposed to do, you do the right thing, you get promoted, and, you know, you're a managing director. Um, 
And so you've learned, I feel like you've learned that lesson in a deep way. If I work hard, if I do what I'm supposed to do, um, if I use my brain, then I'm going to be rewarded. And, you know, the market's a funny thing is that it doesn't really work that way. Um, and I think one of the main reasons it doesn't work that way is because there's so many people like that, that, you know, those kind of inefficiencies of, okay, I'm smart. Hey, I can read a balance sheet really well, you know, whatever. Those inefficiencies aren't there because there's so many people that are good at it, right? So you have to almost take the approach of like, well, gee, if all these guys can see that, then shouldn't I be looking at the opposite at that point, right? And it's very hard to tell a guy who's gotten straight A's his whole life and has succeeded through using his brain and his hard work his whole life, like, hey, take the opposite of what you think. It's very hard for a guy to justify doing that. Why should I do that? Everything I've ever done has been a success, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's kind of where the dichotomy comes in, you know? It's not to say that people that went to Harvard or went to these good schools can't do well. Clearly, there's plenty of people that have done well out of those schools, right? So Yeah, yeah for sure. And, and I think a lot of, and like you said, we can't speak for everybody, but uh, a lot of people, you know, dealing with adversity, you know, if you grow up dealing with adversity, you have, you know, that obviously prepares you well for the market because, you know, most people don't just come in and crush the markets. You got to learn how to deal with loss. And I think that's probably one of the biggest things as well. I mean, I can't really say that I dealt with adversity growing up. I created my own, you know, I would say. <laughs> But like I wasn't raised in any kind of like, you know, underprivileged situation, you know, my parents were professionals and I had every opportunity at my uh, at my fingertips and they would have done whatever they would needed to do to help me. But uh, I just chose to be a jerk. Right. Right. <laughs> While we're on this topic, I mean, you you blew up your account uh, several times. How did you, I guess, from like an emotional and a psychological standpoint, how, how was, you know, blowing up an account? How was that for you? I mean, I was young, you know, so it's like there's plenty of time ahead of me kind of thing. You know, I had a good job anyway. You know, I had income coming in every month anyway. Um, so it just kind of was what it was, you know, the first time. Um, first time I was whatever, 22 years old and I first started trading and it was a massive bull market in Hong Kong. This was like 92, 93, 94. And, you know, when you start like that and you're in a massive bull market and all of a sudden you make a bunch of money, you figure, you figure, you know what you're doing, you know, you don't, you're not old enough or experienced enough to realize, Hey, it's just a bull market. And just because I was crazy enough to throw hugely leveraged bets out there because I was young and stupid, it does make me a genius. And, you know, once the bull market ended, um, you know, the emperor wore no clothes, right? So I had what was coming to me and, and what was needed. Now, again, I didn't know at the time, oh, gee, this is just a good lesson for me to be trading for the next 30 years. You know, I mean, it sucked, but I had a job. So I just went to work the next day and I tried to figure it out again, you know? Mm. <laughs> um, and the second time, um, I also had a comment to make because I went and I graduated from business school and uh, didn't take a job and kind of moved to the beach of Thailand and traded from there and thought I was the greatest hero in the world. You know, here I am 27 years old. I'm living on the beach in Phuket. You know, all my friends are wearing suits every day and going to work and what a joke they are and what a hero I am, you know? Uh, so that was just a matter of time as well. You know? <laughs> yeah. um, which is, really goes right into the psychology of why I blew out. I was fighting the market, right? Why do you fight the market? Cause you think you're smarter than the market, right? 
So here I am, 27 years old, money in the bank, living on the beach, doing what I want, right? So it's basically telling myself, hey, I'm smarter than everybody. Well, the market has a, um, has a pretty good mechanism for teaching you that you're not, you know? Yeah, yeah for um, sure. And so that one was a little bit harder, obviously, because I was a little older and I had built up some good money and I, I basically lost it all. And I had gotten married in the meantime and had a kid and, you know, like all of a sudden life mattered. So that one was a little harder, but I chose to take that as, um, you know, what do I got to do from here to make sure it doesn't, and, and I wrote down, you know, I went through and filled up a notebook with, with stuff about, you know, what I did wrong, what I thought I did right, what I have to focus on and, and all this stuff. And quite frankly, it didn't hurt that nobody wanted to hire me anyway, you know? I mean, I had a, went to business school and all that, and I kind of knew what I was talking about with the markets. But, you know, none of these guys wanted to hire me, Morgan Stanley, whoever, Bear Stearns, you know, you name it. I, I just didn't get along with the people, you know, most of getting hired, I feel like, and I've hired some people in my life is people look at you and like, can I sit next to this guy every day? That's like 90% uh, of it, right? Do I trust them? Yeah. They could trust me because I didn't lie, but I was almost too honest. You know what I mean? So it's like, can I sit next to this guy? And I feel like a lot of those people didn't feel like they could sit next to me. I, you know, I talk a lot of shit and. You know, I mean, I'm very opinionated and you who know, <laughs> wants to deal with that all day. So the fact that no one was going to hire me anyway uh, meant that I really didn't have very much of a choice. I, I really had to figure out this trading. The great thing about trading is if you can figure it out and if you can make money, then, you know, you don't really theoretically have to work for somebody like that, you know? For sure. And, uh, you know, I know Jason has like, you know, a guy from like Jersey, like, did, did you carry a chip on your shoulder kind of just to this point where, where you're saying with some of the, you know, you not getting accepted by some of these people did, did you kind of move with a chip on your shoulder going forward? Like, all right, you know, like, fuck these people. Like I'm gonna do my own thing, make it my own way. I mean, I always kind of wanted to do my own thing, make my own way. Anyway, I feel like part of me not being hireable to these people was that I, I really didn't want to be hireable to these people. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, did I need a job that I need money? Yes. But did I really want to go to work every day in one of these big trading rooms with a bunch of, you know, people that I thought were, you know, not really sharing the same values in life as I do? Um, no, I didn't really want to. So, you know, one of the guys in one of the market wages book says in life, you end up getting what you want. Right. Mm. So I really didn't want that. So maybe that's why I was such a jerk in the interviews. You know? and it make, yeah. And I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Well, when you were in Japan, Jason, you, you talked about how you made a lot of money when Nick Leeson, blew up could you just tell the listeners about the bearings bank collapse and how you profited from the event yeah so i was in hong kong um nick leeson was in singapore trading on the floor and um you know what he was doing now in retrospect was you know he was trying to fund a big hole in his p l by selling options and using the credits he was getting for selling options as if that was real money and filling wow. that hole um and i can remember we knew something was wrong. I didn't speak to Nick Leeson. Um, so I didn't know what was wrong, but you know, the, the, the implied vol on the, on the Nikkei options was so ridiculously low. It didn't make any sense. Right. And it, it wasn't something we concentrated on a lot, but it was always like, you talk about it. Be like, well, you know, the, the ball is so low. The ball is so low. What's going on? Well, it turned out he was selling so many options that he single-handedly lowered the ball, you know, by about 75%. Um, so when he finally blew up and they caught him, um, the Singapore government basically said, look, we're liquidating all of these positions tomorrow. Um, 
so they basically showed their hand, right? They showed the entire hand. <laughs> so the next day, the Nikkei opened down, you know, however much, and the futures were trading at like a 20% discount to cash basically all day. Um, and they had already stated they were getting rid of all these positions that day. So it just made sense to me, you know, to, to do the old cash and carry, right? We bought the futures, we sold the, the cash investors, and the next day, you know, it went back to zero and, you know, we made 20% in a day. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Incredible. It, it was funny because I, I wasn't really, I wasn't aware of this event. So, I, you know, I went and I researched it and it was like something along the lines. <laughs> I didn't realize how big this bank was. I guess like the queen was like involved. Uh, Parents are sort of like an old school, yeah, British institution. Yeah. There's a whole movie yeah. about it too. Like, what a degenerate, yeah. man. What a, what a fucking degenerate. You love it. I mean, I always thought that I always used to tell my firm to hire him. I'm like, who's not going to take a call from Nick Leasley? He's like the most famous guy in the world right now. Exactly. Man. Hire the guy, right? Exactly. Yeah. But he was dealing with, first of all, nobody does that. And second of all, you know, he was dealing with court and all that stuff. I think he might have gone to jail for a couple of years. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And in Vancouver, that happened all the time. People would hide their trades and hide their trades. Not, I mean, and it, they would take down firms. I mean, not bearings, but, you know, that's such a common thing. It's pretty common. People do it. It happens quite a bit, you know, rogue yeah. traders, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, JJ, you, uh, you were telling me you, you had a, a brief correspondence with Nick Leeson. Saw him on Twitter. I commented on something he said, and he said something back, and I it was it was just kind of surreal because I remember watching the movie. Uh, I was trying to get on a, a BTM desk back in I think 1996 or 95, but I just didn't have the pedigree, mm -hmm. so I had to weasel my way into the Vancouver penny stock scene because um, I didn't have any D school or anything like that. But it was pretty surreal uh, having a just like a two second conversation with him. You know, the guy you saw them. What was the movie called Rogue Trader? I think that's what it was called. Probably. And, yeah, and what's that guy? Um, that British or Irish actor uh, was the. Uh, can't remember off the top of my head. But yeah. yeah I mean, if you're gonna go, you might as well go big, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt, no doubt, Jason. Uh, another uh, story I, I found interesting. Uh, you when you worked for your hedge fund in New York, which you actually got fired from, but they eventually got busted by the FBI. Can you speak to like the, the shenanigans behind this? So that firm, um, the guy who owned that firm, I don't want to get into names obviously, but the guy who owned that firm was a super smart guy. Uh, very good businessman, you know, Jewish kid from the streets of Queens kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. Made some money out uh, in China in the 80s, came back, wanted to make some money on Wall Street. He got into the, at the right time, in the 90s, he got into uh, the IPO game. So he was essentially hired a couple of his friends from Queens, and um, they were trading the crap out of the market and creating a lot of commissions for the big IPO firms. And then they were getting big allocations of the IPO, so they weren't making any money, you know, on the stuff they were creating commissions for. But when I, you know, the IPOs then were like the IPOs now, you know, they were getting allocations at $20 of things were opening up at 80. Right. Um, and they were getting huge allocations because that's the way the game is played. Right. If you created a lot of commissions, then you got the big allocations. Um, so when that game ended, um, they decided to turn their firm into like, you know, a macro trading firm or whatever. And they hired me at that point and brought me in. Um, but those guys didn't know how to trade clearly. Uh, you know, it's kind of a hard thing to do, you know, and um, 
And it was clear that they don't know how to trade. And so it was semi easy for me to make money there because when you have four guys sitting around, you have no clue what they're doing. Um, and you trade from the perspective like I trade from, which is, hey, if I could just find the biggest idiot in the room and go opposite him, I can make money, right? Well, I had four of the biggest idiots in the room sitting right in front of me. Um, so yeah, it was semi easy for me to make money in, in that instance. But again, it doesn't make any friends. These guys hated me, you know? Um, I was there for about nine or 10 months. I was literally the only guy in the room that made money that year. And, uh, and they fired me at the end of the year. So, and, and yeah, they went on to, um, they went on to get arrested. Yeah. For insider trading. Not yeah. they, but one of the guys did. And they hired, I remember they hired this other guy um, when they were kicking me on. They were like, oh, we're bringing him in and we're not really good doing futures anymore. And blah, 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 blah. All right, whatever. So they all, those two guys got busted. And that one guy ended up uh, wearing a wire and selling everybody out. And uh, he was the one that was responsible for busting, for getting, uh, what's his name on tape? That one Indian dude, uh, Raj, I can't pronounce Roger Rutham. Yeah. yeah, so he the was Sri the Lanka, one yeah. who ended up going there. Oh, wow. And wearing oh. a wire. Yeah, so it all happened. Yeah. So it all kind of started at this little like four man shop that I was at. They got busted there and then it led all the way up. They traded up. their way up until they busted. <laughs> up. Wow. So, you know, and then it's funny because these guys were like street guys and tough guys. You know what I mean? Like they kick the shit out of you at the drop of a dime kind of thing. And meanwhile, not only are they thieves, they're also fucking rats. So, wow. Yeah. Good for yeah. them. You know, because yeah, I mean? because we spoke, we've had I don't know if you know who Tony Duff is. We, we've had him on a few times. Uh, on the podcast, he he traded at Galleon, right? Right, JJ. He was at Galleon for a brief period. Raj was his yeah, well, yeah. When I met him, he was at Galleon. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, right. So yeah. You know what I'm talking about, but you know, yeah, 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 yeah. Shout out to Tony, good good friend of ours. He wrote the wrote the buy side, good book. Uh, in the in the book, Jason, you you quoted Jesse Livermore, I believe it was about making the money in the sitting, and you you go on to talk about when you went on a trip to Africa. Um, you know, I guess you went for a few weeks, you come back, you're up 15% in a position. I guess it's really had an impact on you. Um, what, what specific adjustments did you make to your trading after that trip? I try to be a lot more patient. I try not to trade around the position too much. You know, um, there's a lot of randomness in the market and sometimes you want to make it out to be what it's not. You know what I mean? If the market's going up, you know, I'm pretty good where I've made my money is deciding whether the market's going up or not or going down. Right. Um, what I'm not very good at is the path. And I think that the path is, is a lot more random than the direction, you know, because look, some news event comes out here. I'm long, whatever. And some crap news event comes out and okay, the market maybe goes down today. You know what I mean? But ultimately I believe the market's going where it's going no matter what. So um, you just got to sit, you know, I'm, I'm I, I try to just sit and, until I think it's not going up anymore until my indicators or whatever I use tells me that it's not going up anymore and then I'll get out, you know? So I try not to trade around the positions too much mm -hmm. if, if at all. Okay. Did after that trip, did it change uh, maybe like your time horizon that you trade in or it was just, no, it definitely did. It definitely did. It definitely did. Yeah. 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 I mean, I made more money in that one month I was away uh, than I made all year trading in and out of the market, you know? Yeah. So why, why waste your time? Why waste your energy? Why deal with randomness? You know what I mean? Catch the big move, right? 
Right, right, for sure. So, so current day. So from from there to now, is your style more or less as a trader? Your your strategy more or less the same? Yes. Yeah. Because you know, yeah, and you you know, in the book, they I guess like the main emphasis in what what Jack dubbed you as was the uh, the contrarian. You know, and one of the pieces I guess that piece of data that was real impactful for you was the the COT report, which is the commitment of traders report for listeners. Can you tell listeners what that is and how you use it? So the commitment of traders report is produced every week by the CFTC. Um, It basically starts with the fact that when you open up a futures account, you have to distinguish yourself as either a speculator or a commercial hedger. And the reason you want to do that is because if you're a commercial hedger, you get a lot less margin requirement right? Because you actually have the physical whatever. So you don't need to have so much margin up there, right? Um, So then at the end of the week, the CFTC releases the data, which shows where these people that are designated speculators, where they are positioned, um, how many are long, how many are short, how much they're long, how much they're short. And it also shows what the commercials are, uh, long, short, and all that. So I see that as a pretty valuable piece of data um, at times. You know, it's just like anything else. It doesn't work all the time. Um, but when it does work, it works well. You know, how do you decipher when it's going to work and how when it's not going to work is something I try to work on every single day. Um, but, uh, you know, if you're looking for where people are participating, you know, um, that's a good way to do it because it's uh, it shows exactly where people are participating because it's real data, right? It's one thing to sit here and try to listen to people yeah. Hey, they're bullish. Hey, they're this. Hey, they're that. Oh, everybody's bullish. Everybody's bullish, right? You can make an argument right now. Everyone's bullish the stock market because they're saying, you know what, 2021 is going to be great. The, the, the virus is going to be over. And, you know, the government's going to eventually pass a stimulus bill and there's going to be all this money and the growth is going to come back, you know. So everyone's kind of bullish. You could argue that right now. But what I would ask is, is everybody actually really long? Um, and I don't know that the answer is yes, you know, and I'm kind of, this is one of the reasons why I'm struggling the last few weeks is I can't really, I'm having a hard time answering that question. Um, but you know, a guy I worked with in Hong Kong used to say it all the time. They actually have to buy. It's one thing, (laughs) it's one thing you're bullish, you know, but if you're going with the idea of positioning is the most important thing, which is what I believe, then it can't just be talk that you're bullish. People have to be massively positioned bullish if you want to start fading it. So, you know, that's kind of, that's the very hard thing about, you know, trying to be contrarian, right? Um, Being contrarian just because things are going up a lot will run you over, right? Um, Being contrarian because everyone in the world is long, that's a different story. So how do you figure out that when everyone in the world is long? Well, the, the commitment of traders does a pretty decent job of it for futures markets. Right. For sure. And, and what you do too, is, I mean, you, you're, you're always putting in your like structural entries, structural stops. This is not just like, he's just going off of uh, this alone. And, and why this resonated so much with me, Jason, I, you, cause I thought of the sports, you know, from sports betting and you even put that analogy in the book, sports betting analogy is like, I, when I sports bet, I'm always looking to fade public, right? If you know, the public is all on something, it's always usually the other side um, of the bet. And I, I feel like most traders, don't think in this manner. Uh, that this has been your experience as well. I think that the idea that you have to be contrarian is something that most people understand. Mm-hmm. The idea they understand how to do it is a lot harder. 
You know, what, again, contrarian what? What are you being contrarian? You're being contrarian price? People have been contrarian price on Tesla since it was at 300. You know what <laughs> I mean? You're getting run over, right? Um, so what is contrarian? Being, I just think being contrarian price is the biggest mistake you can make. I've made it, okay? Mm -hmm. um, being contrarian participation is the key. And then even when you're contrarian participation, you know, there's never going to be a hundred percent participation. So there's always an extra dollar that can go into something. So then it just becomes, yeah, be contrarian participation, but you've got to use risk management tools. Otherwise you'll also get run over, you know? Yeah. So yeah, that's why, you know, I use stops and that's why the way I enter and stuff is it's really all about my entry and my stop kind of thing. You know, that, that does a, a lot of the heavy lifting in, in, in my making money over time. You know, I, I make money in less than 50% of my trades, but yeah. My payoff ends up being four or five to one. You know, I'll lose one, I'll lose one, I'll lose one, I'll make five. I'll lose one, I'll lose one, I'll lose one, I'll make five, you know? Beautiful. And over time, you know, and that's another thing about it is that people don't like to be wrong. You know what I mean? People want to be right 100% of the time, right? You could be right 99% of the time. And if you put 100% of your money on every one of those trades, you're going broke because that one time you're wrong, you, you know, you lost it all, right? So, you know. To me, I just try to make money over time instead of every time. And, and yeah. this is the only way that I kind of know how to do it. Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. I mean, a, a lot of the people, most of the people we've talked to, they emphasize it. And it's something I totally believe in. A win rate doesn't matter. Like you said, it's it's the how much you're winning to how much you're losing. Right. Uh, that whole concept, Jason, uh, dis the discounting mechanism being participation and not price. You, you made emphasis of that being your main message in the book. Has this been like the most important lesson in your mind? that you've like internalized. Yes. I think that's the most important lesson. Yeah. You know, um, fading price, you know, I mean, I'm always fading, not always, but most of the time I'm fading something that's gone up a lot. Right. But I'm not fading it because it's gone up a lot. Mm. Fading it because everybody I know is involved. Right. And, and, and if you think about, you know, how do you discount, right. And that's why I brought up the sports betting thing, right? How does how does something get discounted? You know, to me, it's about people buying it, and therefore it's discounted, right? If everybody knows that X is going to take over the world, and then everybody buys it, well, you know, you take the extreme example: if every dollar in the world was put into something, then there's no way that it could go up because there's no dollars left to go into it, right? Doesn't matter if they take over the entire world at that point, exactly. right? Doesn't matter. There's no money left to go into it. So yeah. that situation is, could never happen. But on a relative basis, that's what I try mm -hmm. to measure it, which is where the danger is because on a relative basis, there's always a little bit more money that could go in there. And hey, then I just get stopped, you know, screw it. <laughs> yeah. Now, now you're, not, you're not primarily one direction, right? You're, you're both long and short, correct? Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't matter to me. All right. All right. It, you know, the uh, funny part, I, I think, of your, your whole interview was the uh, talking about how you would use CNBC. And I think it was uh, maybe Fast Money, I believe. It was one of those programs and how you would like literally we just take the opposite end of the trades that these guys were recommended. And I, I thought that was so funny. So like such a, um, a unique perspective because. I know JJ and myself, I know other people just say, hey, stop, just don't even pay attention to financial media. Don't, don't even pay attention. It's not so, but you took a step further. You just faded it. You would go the other side. So uh, can you speak to that a little bit? People say to me all the time, I, I watch Fast Money every day, okay? 
I don't watch the whole thing, but at five o'clock, they kind of go through what they think the market did today, which they give sort of like whatever the, you know, people always need an excuse for why the market went up or down, right? <laughs> they, they give the excuse for why it went up or down. And then, you know, I kind of hang out and whatever. I play guitar and listen to it and eat dinner with my family and have it on in the background. And then the last five minutes, they do the final trade where they give like their best trade idea for tomorrow, right? And I listen to that. Um, and people say to me, you know, why do you waste your time? Those guys are idiots. I'm like, that's precisely why I waste my time. <laughs> yeah. Right. And it's not all the time, but if you can get all of them mm-hmm. agreeing, right. Then if all four of the people on that show are agreeing, then as a relative sample, there's a good chance that everybody is agreeing with that. Right. And yeah. since I'm always trying to find consensus, that's just one way to kind of find consensus, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's been a guy on there who's a new guy. He just came on about a month or two ago. He started going on there once a week. And I see that, you know, people think that we're in a bubble here. You know, this is the problem with, on the one hand, it seems like the market's going up a lot and everyone wants to be long, but people have been talking it's a bubble and it's overvalued and, you know, the VIX is too cheap. This guy's been going on there for six weeks. And the only trade he gives is, you know, buy VIX, buy VIX, buy VIX, buy VIX. And, you know, I, I see in his personality, you know, these people, it's like these people that want to be right. You know what I mean? Mm. Have the same personalities and he's pushing it and pushing it and pushing it by VIX, by VIX. I mean, I have a picture on my phone that I'm sure I can still find that I took. And it was like at the beginning, maybe the last week of October where this guy was saying the market is an imminent crash. And they had it like in big red letters <laughs> on the screen, imminent <laughs> crash. Right. I'm like, there's no way that this guy is going to be right. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? First of all, if he was right, he wouldn't be sitting there on fast money. Second of all, how many people have ever gotten that trade right? Right? That's the worst trade of all, predicting the crash. Oh. I've done it a million fucking times in my life. Everyone who thinks they're a genius has done it a million times in their life. And maybe Paul Tudor Jones got it right in 1987, but I can't think of anybody else who ever got that trade right. Right? Yeah, exactly. So this guy's on there the last week of October saying imminent market crash is coming. Think about November was like the greatest month in the stock market like ever. Right? Exactly. So, you know, if he, again, if he's thinking it, other people like that must be thinking it. Therefore, they're probably positioned for that. Therefore, there's a good chance they're probably going to get their ass handed to them. Therefore, there's a good chance you can make money doing the opposite, right? Yep. Yeah. Um, that's kind of the logic there, you know. So that's why I watch Fast Money. It's just another way to help build consensus, you know. For sure. Yeah, nothing. Right. Nothing like trap shorts to give you a nice natural bid. No, that's right. You know, how come no one ever says there's an imminent market like rip coming? It's always this exactly. market crash. It's crash, you know? right? I mean, can my look theory on, on shorting stocks, and I've done it. I've shorted stocks a million times in my life. It's probably been, and I've made money short stocks before. But I think that it is the most dangerous trade. To me, shorting stocks, I would be willing to bet, and I'm not a, a doctor or a chemist or anything, but biochemist. I'd be willing to bet that when you make money shorting stocks, it triggers the same thing in your brain that that heroin triggers. There's no Mm -hmm. question. There's no question. To me, shorting the stock market is like being addicted to heroin, right? Yep. Because when it works, and I haven't taken heroin, I have to say, but when it works, it's the greatest feeling in the world, right? You're going home on the train. Everybody lost money today. You're sitting there and saying to yourself, look at what a hero I am. All these bozos lost money today. I made a ton of money. I'm the biggest hero in the world, right? To me, it's like like a heroin addiction. Mm -hmm. And in the long term, 
just like heroin. If you keep doing it, you're going to regret it. <laughs> you, know I mean? yep. you keep shorting stocks time after time after time, yeah. you're going to regret it. And so well, and that's, you know, yeah, I get, I just get, you know, I, my whole career was I'd get hired to like conduct short squeezes on deals. Right. You know, right. and I just engineer them and suck all the stock out of DTC and grab everybody short and have a nice day. Right. 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 You know, and nobody knows that. I don't, I don't understand why people short stocks where there's no bloody supply. It's like the simplest thing in the world. If there's no supply, where the hell is this paper going to come from? I mean, even just shorten them, you know, I mean, I don't even trade stocks. I trade the S&P or the NASDAQ or the Russell or the Dow or whatever, but, and it's not that, you know, it, it's not that I'm not going to short again in the future. You know, I, I will, when my data and everything tells me to be short, I'll be short, but yeah. it's such a losing trade over time that, you know, you, <sighs> Niederhofer again, who, who again has blown out more than once, but he always <laughs> says if he's short in stocks, he's doing like, you know, 20% of the size of what he's being long stocks. Right. Mm -hmm. Because you're talking about a huge drift against you, right? You're talking about a hundred yep. year drift going against you, right? Exactly. So, but I, I love the first chapter of that book, by the way, "The Old Man in the End." That's uh, it's one of my favorite chapters. Yeah, yeah, that was a good book. <laughs> yeah, he wrote a good book. But like I say, I always thought the conclusion was if you write a book, you're going to blow out. So, yeah. <coughs> and he did. So, <laughs> are you a, you're you're not a superstitious guy, are you, Jason? I mean. You know, like anybody else, I guess. Anyone else? That was great, though. Uh, comparing short short selling to a hit of heroin. That's that's that was great. That, that was funny. Um, Jason, uh, you've had a period, I, I believe, where you were trading more of a systematic manner. Uh, you had a quant working with you. Uh, I guess that was something you didn't like, and I don't think the returns were as good as uh, being discretionary. Uh, you still stand by that, I assume. Yes. I mean, you know, if you're going to use data like the COT data and you're going to use it uh, not as everything, but as a, a big part of what you're doing, you might as well test it and see if it's gotten into literally, right? Yeah. Um, so we did a lot of that. And at some point we just systemized it and, and we did, and we traded it systemized. Um, but I, uh, I don't think that a system can be to me, what they say, like with AI and all that stuff, uh, a computer can do better than a person, but a person and a computer can do better than a computer, right? So to me, that's the same thing, right? A system might be able to do better than just some hack sitting there trying to trade them up all day, right? But I think a person with a system um, does better. And that's kind of what I do here. You know, if you know, 30 years of sitting in front of these screens, 18, 20 hours a day or whatever the hell I do, right, is worth nothing, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, um, then okay, you know what I mean? I guess it's worth nothing. But I feel like with the, the, the system helps me with discipline, right? Um, like I can't get short stocks here based on the fact that my system doesn't want me to be short stocks, right? Can I sit here and justify myself? You know, justification in, in, in human beings is, is, is the number one thing, right? I, you could cite a million examples, but people can justify whatever they want to justify if that's what they want to do. They want to believe something, right? I, I have found it, in, in particular as I've gotten older and I, I try to pay attention to this, if somebody wants to believe something, they will believe whatever they want to believe and they will find reasons to believe it, right?
Um, so if I really want to be short stocks, there's the danger of, okay, oh, well, this guy on TV just said that, you know, he's super bullish and he's an idiot. Oh, well, this guy has said this, this guy, you know, and I can find reasons to short it, but my system will stop me from making those stupid trades, right? Because it's data. So here's the data to support it. So let's get the data with it, you know? Um, so that's kind of how it goes. It's like systemized, but the discretionary part is really more about risk management than anything else, you know? Um, I can see, and I know that there's value at risk and things that theoretically can also see this too. But when I look at my portfolio, you know, I know where the correlations are, you know what I mean? And so I know where I should size and where I shouldn't size. So I have the same trade on six times. There's no reason to have a full size position on, which my system would have, right? And my system, obviously, when those work, will do better than I will. But I see my side of the discretionary side is the not blowing out part, you know, my system has six positions on all that are all correlated and they all go against, you know, it's going to lose 10%. You know, I'm never going to lose 10% because I'm never going to do that. Now, clearly the other side comes on too, right? Well, then I don't get the upside either. Right. But I like to use discretion to, to protect downside. And, and arguably sometimes I do that too much and I shoot it my return should be higher, but that's just how, how I sleep at night. Yeah. I, I often like think about this, this question, like a discretionary versus systematic, you know, and when, when we were talking a little bit on the phone, Jason, I was telling you, I transfer uh, coming over from playing poker professionally and AI and uh, bots, et cetera, is what's really crushing poker as far as a game. And I often think about that as far as trading. It, it seems like people have a lot more optimistic hope for trading, always being a human game. Uh, like we're talking about as far as uh, discretionary being higher returns as far as systematic. Do you ever see that being in danger in the future or? I feel like it's garbage in, garbage out, you know? So you could put whatever you want into a computer. And that's why I don't think like value investing, you know, necessarily works anymore or, or any of these type of things because, you know, it worked for Warren Buffett. Yeah, because Warren Buffett was sitting in an office in the 50s and 60s, right? Going from <laughs> balance sheets, you know what I mean? Yeah. With a green shade or whatever, you know? <laughs> and no one was doing that. That can be done in 10 seconds now, right? Yeah, you want a company that whatever, trades at X amount of book and this and that and the other thing, <laughs> I mean, in five seconds, I'll give you every single company that, that does that, right? Yeah. So how is there possibly gonna be an edge there, right? So, I mean, people could put the commitment to traders data into their computer at this point and try to do what I do, but, um, and I get questions of that sometimes when, when I have people that want to give me money, but I don't know, to me, there's a, there's a second variable to it. You know what I mean? It's hard to be a contrarian at, at the end of the day. It's very, very difficult to go against what everybody's doing, you know, um, for a million reasons, right? Um, and I go through it too now, you know, like I'm not long stocks here. I'm not short stocks here. I want to be long stocks because it's fun. Everybody's making money. You know what I mean? Everyone's <laughs> long. Everybody's making money. And here I am, I'm freaking sucking wind, you know? Um, it's very hard to not be involved with a the crowd. There's safety in crowds. I mean, there's a reason why human psychology has developed that way, right? We have survived essentially probably. I don't know if you ever read that book, uh, what was it called? Species or something that came out a couple of years ago? Uh, sapiens. sapiens. Yeah. Sapiens. You know, we survived as a species because of our ability yeah. 
to be part of the crowd, right? We needed that, right? In order to grow our population and, and, and be the, the number one species on earth, right? Um, so it's very hard to not do that. Now, why do I do it? And why I've always been that way? I have no idea, you know what I mean? But it goes back to like, it goes back to the guys at Harvard. I can go to school and learn all those things that the people that went to Harvard learned, right? I can learn discounting cash flow method. I mean, I did go to school and learn all this stuff, right? I mean, Breeley and Myers, and my professor was Dick Breeley, right? He wrote the book, right? So I can learn all that stuff. I don't think you can go back when you've been a good boy your whole life and gotten rewarded for it. I don't think you can go back in time and say, oh, well, now I'm going to be like this rancid contrarian and go against everybody ever, <laughs> ever says. You know what I mean? You can't relearn that. You know, it's just and, and for whatever reason, that's how I, I was. And that's much to the chagrin of my mother and everybody else around me. You know what I mean? And my wife half the time and everybody else I've had relationships with, you know, but that's how I am. So it becomes, it becomes easy for me. Like I, I get better sleep at night when I have a position on and these guys or whatever on CNBC start talking about the opposite of that. Right. I'm like, mm. damn, now I can sleep tonight. You know, it yeah. just, it's like in my DNA, man, if these guys are all saying it and I'm the opposite way, then I feel good. And not that it always works, but you know, it's just my DNA for whatever yeah. bizarre reason. You know, I, I think on this topic as well, uh, like innate qualities versus things that can be learned over time. You talked about a friend who was a lawyer, uh, unhappily a lawyer, but he couldn't fathom quitting his job. Uh, he, he has essentially a zero appetite for risk. I believe you put it that way. Do you think risk tolerance is something that is innate or and it can be improved upon? I think it's partly innate and it's partly um, it's partly based on your situation. You know, mm -hmm. um, I was fortunate in that, you know, my parents weren't mega wealthy or anything, but you know, they were typical kind of New Jersey, you know, upper middle-class people. My dad was a professional, you know what I mean? So if I went broke, I wasn't ever going to be living on the street. You know what I mean? I could always go whatever, borrow $5,000 from my dad or something, or, you know, I never had to, fortunately. And pride doesn't really want you to do that. But truthfully, I knew, even if it was subconsciously, right, that I was never going to be on the street corner, you know, holding a cup out to survive, right? So that gives you an advantage. You know, most people, and I grew up in a bubble, you know what I mean? In upper middle class New Jersey, right? when you're growing up, you don't realize what else is out there. Right. But as you go out and you see the world, that's not how most people are. Right. Most people, if they take a big risk and they fail, they're going to be screwed. You know what I mean? Where are they going to live? Who's going to pay their rent? You know, I mean, these are basic things that people need. Right. So it's a little easier for me because of that. I think if I'm to be honest, to take some risk. Now I'd probably go above and beyond that. I mean, my whole day is about taking risk. I mean, I sit here sometimes and I think, you know, when I'm trying to convince myself to do something like when I'm on my deathbed, man, I don't want to sit here and be like, man, I should have taken more risk out there. You know what the <laughs> hell? You only live once. I'm dead now. Anyway, I should have just freaking taken more risk. What the hell was I waiting for? Right. 
which is ridiculous because it's all I ever do is take risks, sometimes unnecessarily and sometimes to my own destruction, you know? Um, but, you know, that again, it, so that part is like DNA. My ex-wife used to say, you know, I just love trouble. That was her whole thing. And she was pretty like not a risky person. Mm -hmm. um, but she used to say that about me all the time. Oh, you just like trouble. You just like trouble. Uh, to me, she was from Thailand, so her English wasn't great. But trouble was her way of saying risk, you know. Mm. Um, and then again, it becomes like I look now, right? So the last five years of my trading, all right? I stopped trading for about a year and a half. I came back and I started trading again about five years ago. So the last five years, my returns are better than they ever have been in terms of return to risk, return to drawdown, any way you want to measure it, sharp, whatever you want to do, right? They're, they're the best they ever have been. Now, why is that? Well, it's a combination of obviously, you know, 30 years of, of experience, hopefully, right? It's a combination of I've taken, I've gone through being a discretionary trader and hopefully figured out some of the weaknesses that I have in that. I've gone through just doing it totally systemized and figured out hopefully some of the weaknesses in that. And I've put them both together and hopefully I'm using the strengths of both of those things. Okay, so there's that argument. Maybe that's why I'm trading better than ever before. But there's also the argument of my risk has dropped because I put money in the bank, you know? My kid's college has already been paid for. You know what I mean? I own my house without a mortgage, right? I don't have any car payments, you know? So that helps you obviously from a risk perspective as well. What am, what, what am I gonna freaking lose, right? And as long as I stay disciplined, oh, well, I won't do this stop because what am I gonna lose? You know I mean? That doesn't work, <laughs> you know? that doesn't work. But if you continue to take the process seriously and you have a lot less financial risk out there, right? Exactly. Then you can succeed even more, right? Mm -hmm. So it's always that hard part. Well, how do you get there? You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and the answer is, you know, a lot of the answer to that, unfortunately, is luck, right? Um, I mean, when I was 38 years old, I was, I barely had a dime to, to scratch together. And I had a friend join this, you know, big hedge fund that knew me and liked how I traded. And he became a senior guy there and they hired me. And then the next thing you know, I'm managing a lot of money and I'm able to hire people and I'm able to, you know, quantify all the different things I'm looking at. And, you know, and there's a big payout. And, you know, three years later, all of a sudden, you know, I have a bunch of money. Okay. Was that luck? I mean, it's partial luck, right? So, um, but you know, as they say, you make your own luck, right? I mean, this mm -hmm. guy hired me because I had been keeping in touch with him for a number of years and talking about markets and doing all that stuff. So um, I hope that answers your question. I don't know. No, that was great. That was excellent. And even just really to touch on the, yeah, just to touch on the, the luck point that you're talking about at the end, I asked, I asked Jack this when we had him on, because I was like, you know, what's up with some of these traders, like what percent luck do you think played in these guys' success? And he answered it is that like, you know, everyone, like all of them had their own type of luck, but they have the ability to capitalize on the luck. And so I thought that made a lot of sense. I think clearly over time, over time, it can't be luck. Because right. It's just too freaking hard. Right? right. At any time, can it be luck? Sure. Hey, I bought freaking, you know, a ridiculous amount of Tesla at 250. And then, you know, I was put in the hospital for six months and I woke up six <laughs> months later and I made $3 million. Right. Yeah. Um, but are you going to hold on to that? You know, 
anyone, you know, if you trade enough, anyone can make a winning trade. You know what I mean? A broken clock is right twice a day, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and that was like me earlier in my career. Yeah, I caught this Hang Seng bull market. I didn't even know the difference between what a bull market and a bear market even was. You know, I was buying shit, buying shit, then this market kept going up. So I made a bunch of money. Hey, great. But did I hold on to it? No. You know, um, so I think over time, luck isn't going to get you there. Um, if you happen to get lucky, then you should be learning as you go so that you learn how to, you know, really do it, I think, right? Yeah. You know, I, I was reading this thing. Someone sent me this thing that Tudor said, and I don't have it in front of me, but it was like he was like turning 40 and he was reflecting on his life. And he's like, you know, I just have to admit that there's a pretty high probability that it was all just luck up till now. All this, and the guy was like a billionaire, you know? It was yeah. all, I, have to, I have to be honest with myself and say there's a, there's a good possibility this was all just luck. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a guy who was a pretty good market trader, you know? Yeah, no, and that's incredible to have that type of humility. And I think that's what makes, I think a lot of times people get it misunderstood that like, uh, you, you see certain people of certain statuses, like very egotistical. I think that's a minority. I think a lot of times people's success, like for, for Paul Tudor to even say that, to have that type of humility, like uh, I think that's probably what makes him such a good trader. There's no question about it. You better have humility, man. Yeah. Or else the market will rip you an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> no, there's a guy that I follow on LinkedIn. I'm not going to say his name. I, I sit here all day and I go on LinkedIn because I'm doing the same thing that I do for, you know, for CNBC, right? I'm just looking yeah, for yeah. consensus. <laughs> and this guy, and you talk about Tesla, this guy's been saying short Tesla for the last 400 points, right? But, and that's wow. fine. A lot of people have been saying that. But the way he speaks and the way he talks, he's like, oh, every professional knows that this thing's a short, all these stupid retail traders that are buying this thing and it's all mo and this and that. They're a bunch of morons. And they're, it's like, look, man, <laughs> who's the moron? You know what I mean? Yeah. The guy who bought the thing at 300 or the guy who sold it at 300? Like, exactly. You better have some humility or you're going to get run over, you know? Yeah, definitely. He's, he was going off on it today. He was going off about this guy. What's his name that everybody hates? Portney, is that his name? The guy from uh, oh, yeah. He's probably your idol, right? No, I um, But he's saying how the stock, I don't know, some company bought a piece of his company, some gaming company or whatever. Yeah. And he's saying how that stock's the biggest short in the world because this guy, Portney, is a freaking moron and everybody who listens to him is a bunch of freaking morons. I'm like, you know. You're the guy that's been short Tesla's in 300. So you want to call everybody a moron, you know, go ahead, right? Just because you have a job as a portfolio manager, you know, just because that happened to be where you got on your business card doesn't make you any different than some other guy that's retail trading, right? Right. Uh, in fact, except, point, it's probably better to be a retail trader than these other well, guys. because they're not Except for the fact that this guy's trading OPM so he can be short. And if he blows himself up, he goes to France for a holiday and comes back. He claims to not be trading LPM. He claims to be trading his money. Oh, really? Look, to me, I don't understand how this guy's trading at all. Because for six months, all he's been is bearish. And the only thing he's put on there are short ideas. So I don't even believe that he's trading at all. Because if he was, he'd be blown out by now, right? Yeah, exactly. Right? I think he's just working for daddy's company, personally. But, you know, I, I don't really know. But my point is he has no humility whatsoever. And, you know. <laughs> None. You're yeah. gonna die. And people think, you know, my wife in particular tells me all the time, I'm freaking cocky and I'm conceited and this and that. But the truth is, you better have humility all the time. Otherwise, you know, the market will teach you. The market is better than anything at teaching you humility, right? Exactly. For sure. Yeah, the, the, the whole thing with Portnoy, first of all, Portnoy is not my idol. I, I like what he does business wise, for sure. I think he's a real good like businessman and how he built up the brand. 
Yeah. Yeah. No, no, because we, we've talked to people about this before. Like, like this guy, he gets so tilted by Portnoy and like, but he, uh, he's, the, I think the guy's good for the game, right? Like he's bringing in these, these, the, the retail money that's going on. And I he's love funny. that guy. And people take him so serious. It's like, I think he's good for the game. He brings some fun to the game, brings some dumb money in, if you want to put it that way. So uh, I, I don't what know. What's the definition of dumb money? To me, dumb money is the money that's losing money. Smart money absolutely, is yeah, money. Absolutely. You know I mean? And again, it's over time. But shit, when he was sitting there pulling, you know, pulling squares out of a uh, out of a bag, you know? Yeah. yeah. A quote is, I mean, <laughs> come on, man. I love it. That guy's out of his mind. How can you not love someone like that? Yeah. He may make money. He may lose money. But at least he's got the balls to go out there and be he's crazy. Yeah, he's bringing yeah, fun. He's, we talk about this exactly. Yeah, have some entertainment. No, because we talk about these guys it's on CNBC. Like, I don't know. It's not entertaining to me. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. He's fun. And you know what? It's his money. So if he loses it, he loses it. And he made the money, right? And people are so get so taken aback by someone who goes out there and, and acts different. And I mean, what else is there in life, man? Right, exactly. I mean, I get that from people all the time. So, you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> No, and uh, it's funny. Not like that. Pen, the Pen Gaming that he's, uh, they like they bought out like a piece of the company. They're yeah. like, they're they're uh, like during the casino game. Like they're they're like a legit. Uh, anyway, uh, moving on, uh, Jason. Uh, yeah, again, I don't know anything about it. I, I can't say that I am going to know anything more about Pen Gaming than than anybody else. Certainly, I'm going to know less because I don't pay attention to it. But clearly, there are people out there that understand the game. All I know is the stock's at 84. That's all I know on all-time highs. So yeah. are you going to ask me if this thing is a short on all-time highs? I'm going to tell you you're freaking nuts. Now, maybe tomorrow, you know, let it close down. I used to tell this guy in Tesla, I could do let the thing close down one day. And then it. <laughs> yeah. Like, why do you have to be short every day, man? You know? So it's the same thing with Penn Gaming. All I need to know really is it's on all-time highs. And if you want to try and fade that, Something only hits an all-time high once, you know? Yeah. So do you really need to get the exact high tech? And you're talking to a guy who trades highs and lows. I buy yeah. lows and I sell highs. That's what I do. That's where yeah. I make my money, right? But I wait until there's market confirmation first, you know? Exactly. I'm not shorting something that's closing on its all-time high. I'll never, <laughs> ever do that, you yeah. know? Yeah. You know, let it have a reversal day, you know, however you want to decide what a reversal is, right? Yeah. Let it have something before you short it right mm -hmm. so that's my feeling on pen gaming without knowing a damn thing about it yeah yeah jason i want to i want to ask you again about kind of like the, the the psychological aspect of trading and you know we all have our you know personal lives we have things that go on uh you spoke to in the book like when you were uh you know you went through a divorce uh did that have any impact on your trading performance um i don't think so I'm pretty good at, um, it's really the opposite. I think my trading performance has impact on my relationships. You know? yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm pretty good at compartmentalizing all that, although not great. Um, I've gotten better over time. But again, which goes with the fact that, you know, God forbid I, I go and lose 10% here, right? In the accounts that I manage. And I tell people if I lose 10%, then they should take their money back. Mm -hmm. Um but if I do, you know, I, I, I'm not going to be looking for money to buy food, right? So it's okay. I'll be okay. So therefore, my emotions 
could be a little bit more controlled than they used to be, right? But even so, it affects. I mean, I, I've been losing money, man, since that freaking book came out the first week of November, right? I'm looking at my P&L right now. I'm down six out of the last seven weeks, which is the first time that's happened in five years, right? Am I going to blame the book? No. But what I'm saying is that my wife, um, I have a, a wife and, and we get along great, you know, second marriages are to me, so much better than first marriages. There's so much less pressure and all this stuff. And, you know, we didn't feel like we had to get married to have kids. We got married because we were freaking deeply in love and because we actually got along great, right? Mm -hmm. So, and we still get along great, but she has started to say things to me recently, like, you know, what's the matter? You know, and she never asked me, how's the mark? She, she doesn't want to know, you know? Um, but she has been saying to me lately, like, what's the matter? What's on your mind? Something's going on. I can tell, you know, it's like, yeah, I've lost money six out of the last seven fucking weeks, man. You know what I mean? You know, if you during the day when I'm throwing shit at the TV all day, right? When you get home, I'm sort of back to normal. Right. But yeah, that's, what's the matter. You know what I mean? It bothers me, man. It bothers me. And, and, and that really is an, it's an ego thing, you know, like I, I want to be good at what I do, you know, just like anybody. Right. Like, you know, you could say it's a money thing, but truthfully, it's, it, it's an ego thing. I spend so much time doing this and I have spent so much time doing this and I've lost so much money in my life that I feel like I should have learned the lessons that I should be really good at this by now. And when you go through a period and, and it's inevitable, you know what I mean? And I at least kind of saw this coming. So my position sizing has been super small. Um, so I haven't really lost a lot of money. But even so, man, like just sitting here day after day, today's going to be my eighth down day in a row. You know, it's like psychologically, man, it, it hurts. <laughs> I mean, say what you want. Oh, yeah. It hurts. It sucks. Yeah. It's yeah, boring. Yeah. I keep saying it's boring coming in every day and it's boring, man. Boring. You know, and it, and it does. I mean, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Jason. I mean, you've been in the game for 30 years and it still still sucks. It still hurts. Like that doesn't go away, does it? Like I said, I've been in the game for 30 years and I don't even need the money anymore. And it still yeah. sucks. Right. You no, know, right. because right. you want to be good. You know, you want to be good at what you do. Who doesn't want to be good at what they do? You know, sure. especially when you put so much work into it. Yeah. Exactly. And that's what's so hard about trading. Right. Like I, I picked up guitar about a year ago. Right. So with music, I feel like what I've learned is, OK, I might not be, you know, Eddie Van Halen one day, <laughs> but if you put the time into it you're going to get better. It's all a question of hours, right? Not all, there's clearly a, a part that has to do with talent and whatever, right? But it's amazing how much more talent you get the more time you practice, right? But with trading, you know, it's not really like that. You, know? <laughs> you can work your ass off and it doesn't mean exactly. a damn thing, you know? Oh, so, yeah, no kidding. And you, you talk about psychology, you have to be psychologically ready to understand that, you know? And that's where I think, again, going back to these Harvard guys, they have a hard time psychologically understanding that because what they've done their whole life is work hard and be rewarded for that and be successful for that. Right. And I don't know in the market if that's really the case. Uh, you have to be, you have to be able to endure the psychic wars and the mental anguish, you know, and I don't even know, you know, and I don't know if yet, look, man, I'm, I'm going through it right now, man. You know what I mean? You get yeah, into these ruts. Yeah. I'm losing money. Now, all of a sudden, every trade I make is like, well, I'm selling the lows. I'm buying the highs, you know, because I'm yeah. trading freaking from a hole, right? Yeah. And I'm trying to make it up. And it's all the wrong psychology. And I spend yeah. all night sitting down and thinking about that, you know, because I know how to train it now. And I think about what are you doing? Like, why did you make that trade? Why did you do you're, you're chasing? You're doing this. You're doing that. And it's still, even though you know you're doing it, 
it's yep. still hard to get out of that rut, you know? Yeah. yeah. So eventually it'll come, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, well, I like Christmas, you know, you get take a little time, just chill, you know, it's, uh, I don't yeah, know. I mean, I, I, I mean, a, as far as the markets go, I'm just kind of on the, I'm a, I feel like I'm on the wrong end of, you know, I'm getting, I'm getting shorts in basically everything. Um, commodity wise. Um, and I think I'm too early because, you know, because of this whole money printing thing and the whole, you know, rebound thing. And that's why I'm getting shorts because people are getting long, all that stuff. Yeah. But I think I'm just too early. You know what I mean? So whatever, I keep it small. I get stopped. And when I catch it, that might be three, four months from now. You know, when I catch it, it it'll be big. You know, it's just a question yeah. of watching the risk management and accepting the hard thing. You know, the other point is I started this CTA in February, right? Okay. Um, I was up every month this year. Wow. Which is a great feeling, right? And then all of a sudden, yeah. you believe your own bullshit. Hey, I could be up every <laughs> month forever. You know what I mean? Hey, if somebody wants to, you know, I, I want to raise money. Oh, well, who's not going to give me money if I'm up every freaking month? I'll just put yeah. up 80 straight months, you know, up, up months, right? <laughs> Uh, so you get that in your head, right? And then you have a down month. I mean, I lost 70 basis points last month, right? After being up every month of the year, right? So I lost yeah. 70 basis points. Like, is that, if you really back up and think about it, is that really the end of the world, you know? Yeah. No, but it feels like it when you convince it, yourself that, hey, I'm going to make money every month, right? Yeah. Which you're never going to freaking do. But, yeah. um, you know, a lot of life, I feel, is about, it's just relative to expectations, you know? So if your expectations are low, then it's not too hard to be happy, right? Mm-hmm. If your expectations are that you're going to make money, like I set myself up for this, right? If your expectations <laughs> are you're going to make money every single month, then you better believe you're going to fall short of expectations. Right? <laughs> so that's what I'm going through, you know, right now, unfortunately. But you know, yeah. it's you know, Now, I've been doing this 27 years. You've been doing it 30. How did, I'm curious, how did you get your start and how did you end up in Asia? Um, I ended up in Asia because I had nothing else to do when I came out of college. I okay. took, uh, this was in 89. I came out of college when Japan was ripping, you know, yeah. and I took Japanese in school thinking I'd be like, Ooh, oh, Japanese and all that. Right. And this kid uh, in my Japanese class was telling me about, it. he went the summer before and he taught English in Japan. Yep. And I was like, oh, that sounds pretty cool. So I graduated college and I, I went and taught English in Japan for a year. I oh, ended cool. up in Asia and then I got a job at HSBC. Yeah. Um, and like their executive development program and whatever. Oh, okay. um, and so there we were. All of a sudden, I was in Hong Kong. The way I started trading was when I was in Hong Kong, I played, uh, I think I went into this in the book, but I played on a, uh, on a softball team in Hong Kong, you know, all my American buddies. And one kid was like a broker, you know? And uh, he was like, oh, yeah, you should try this thing. So, you know, Hong Kong Bank, because I was in their little executive development program, they paid my rent, you know? Yeah. I had a good salary. They paid my food. I didn't have any expenses. You know, that's yeah. how they treat their boys over there. So like I put my money into this futures trading account and I, I bought a Hang Seng Index future. I didn't know what the hell it was. You know, I still remember to this day, the market was up. I think it was like a hundred points, which back then was a lot because the Hang Seng was only at about 3,500. Yeah. And I'm like, man, should we, that thing's up a lot. Should we sell it? And the guy's like, no, man, I think you should buy it. I was like, okay, buy it. <laughs> I didn't break it. <laughs> It was lucky because I kept buying it all the way up till 10,000, right? Nice. Yeah, except then I gave that all back, but, you know, whatever. Um, but, yeah, that's kind of how I started. It was out of boredom. My, my job was horrible. You know, I worked for a commercial bank, and I was bored as hell, you know? Yeah. Um, so, really, it was just out of boredom. 
But that day, I think I talked about that in the book too. That day, I bought this Hang Seng Index futures contract and I went out during lunch to the bookstore and I bought Market Wizards. I didn't know I was going to buy Market Wizards. I just said, maybe I'll buy a book. I was always a big reader. I was like, I, I should buy a book and learn what the hell I'm doing here. Uh, and uh, Market Wizards was at the time, like, you know, that was when it first, right when it was out in bookstores. Yeah, I remember. Um, it was like right on the front there and I bought it and I read it that day and I woke up in the morning. I was like, yeah, I'm in, man. This is what I need to be doing. And I've been working towards that ever since. And I'm 53 now, and I don't even know if I'm there yet. <laughs> I get that. I'm 52. I can... I'm 52. Uh, had a massive heart attack at 44. Oh. And uh, so, yeah, I get that. You know, it's, it's, yeah, we're never, we never really do get there. <laughs> you know, and maybe that's a really, uh, a good lesson in life anyway. Do you ever get yeah. there? I learned that with guitar. You know, I started playing guitar a year ago, right? And people are like, well, where do you want to go with it? I'm like, I don't want to go anywhere. You know what I mean? I just want to play and get better as I go and feel like I can play some tunes and feel like maybe I can make up some cool music. You know what I mean? Like I'm not mm -hmm. trying to get anywhere. There's no destination. There's not a point where someone comes over to you and hangs a metal and you go, hey, you now know how to play guitar. <laughs> you know, you never get that confirmation of you now know how to play because there is there is none of that. You know, I was reading a thing about a guy who, who retired from like the New York Philharmonic or something. He's like this 85 year old guy played piano for them for 40 years and he retired. And the reporter's like, oh, so what are you going to do now? He's like, well, I got to go home because I got to practice. <laughs> yeah, it's all like, about the ride. Right. That's it. You know, it's the journey, man. There's no destination. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. And good. Hopefully there's not. I mean, I try to get better at trading. Hopefully I, I try to learn something every day. Yeah, you know? bless it. I've learned a lot that I still suck. So I think I think I think that's a huge. I mean, especially like for the listeners. I mean, I think that's a huge, humongous point, right? Like, is uh, the process, the journey. There's no destination. And going back to what you were talking about, having low expectations. I, I've, the way I've always approached it is just no expectations. And I think it's just cultivating the right type of mindset to you know keep you sharp, keep you in the zone, in the flow, etc. I mean, it's a very you know. It's a very deep philosophy, but uh, I, I find that if you can really go into things with no expectation, then clearly you're going to be surprised to the upside all the time, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, you put work into something. I mean, do you really have no expectations for what you're doing here on, on your site? I mean, you put work into it. You're putting money into it. You're putting a lot of effort into it. So to have no expectations on that, it, it's hard. I'm not saying you can't do it, but it, it's, it's very hard, you know? Um, and these are all mental disciplines that, you know, the, the great thing of the cool thing about trading is that all these things to me are are um, like hyped up with trading all these emotions and all these things that you talk about you know trading is such a hyped up version of all those things right so you really have to start to be in control of these type of things you know meditation i think it, is the most important thing a trader can do, right? Clear your mind, try to clear your mind because, you know, first of all, you're dealing with something that's random most of the time anyway. So stop taking it so personally, you know what I mean? <laughs> and people always say, oh, well, it's easy for you to say this stuff. Oh, you know, people look at the end of the day, people start trading because they want to make money, right? They want to get to that point. Hey, now I've got a bunch of money. Okay, now I cannot care, right? Yeah. But the truth is, if you want to get to that point, you have to not care, you know? So it's, it's a very difficult thing, you know? And, and they talk about this in a million different things. I don't know if you ever saw, you know, the, 
the mind game of tennis was a famous book, right? I read the one, the guy changed, took it and turned it into the mind game of music, which is why I read it. But he talks about that too, you know? The best way that you can play is if you're not trying to play, you know, whether it's tennis or whether it's music, whatever it is, right? If you're playing something on guitar, if you're thinking about, oh, I got to get from the E and I got to get to the A and you know what I mean? If you're just letting it go, it gets there. And so how do you let it go? That's the whole hard part of, of, of everything, right? It is. And I'm, it's still I, magnified, you know? And I'm glad we went down this route, Jason, because like, like, like to, to that point, right? It's like uh, it's like one of the, the Zen cons that I, I really connected with, right? It's like, it's like you, you got to try, but not try too hard. You know, it's like that. Yeah, you got to care. Otherwise, you're going to do nothing. But, but not too much. You can't really care. Yeah. yeah, care but not care. Yeah, and it's a, it's so it, it, how does our logical brain uh, comprehend that? You don't comprehend it like that. That's the thing. And, and you know, since we were, we're up on this, um, another part of your story that I liked is you you spent a month in a monastery, I think, in, in Burma. Yeah, yeah. You, I guess, since we're kind of down this road, you want to kind of just speak to that and the impact that had on you. Yeah, I mean, it was an interesting thing. I really just went to Burma when I left Hong Kong. And I, I was going to London to go to business school, and I had like six months. So I basically went overland from Hong Kong, essentially, all the way up through till I got to England. Um, and I just went to Burma because it was kind of close. It wasn't totally closed at the time, obviously, because I got in, but not a lot of people were going to Burma. And I thought that was cool. So I went and um, I just ended up at this monastery that was like a, you know, theoretically like a tourist place to go. Although a tourist place in Burma is a little bit different than a tourist place in most places, but it was just a tourist place to go and. I, I met the, the monk and he asked me to stay and I ended up staying, you know? And um, yeah, I, you learn a lot, you know? You learn a lot through that process. What's important, what's not important, you know? Um, it's very rare that you get to take a month and have nothing to do and just basically sit alone and think about priorities, you know, and think about what's important. You know, that's why travel I think is really a great thing. You learn a lot of that about the, those priorities when you travel. Mm-hmm. You see other people and other cultures and, and this, that, and the other thing. Um, even though saying, oh, well, look how poor the people are in this African nation. That ain't going to help pay for my college kids, my, you know, my kids' college education, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, just the fact that they're poor and I'm not as poor as them. Hey, I don't have to eat dirt, but you know what? My still, I still got to come up with 75 grand to pay for my college, right? Um, but, you know, all these things, it, it, it's a hard tie. But truthfully, somehow, the less you care about these things... The, the more successful you're going to be at all of them, I find. So yeah. I try to go through, I try to go through not caring, you know, I, you have to care because I manage people's money. So I care because, yeah. you know, I care about managing their money. Right. But in order to care about that, I have to not care. Right. So, yeah. and, and yeah, that's kind of what you, you get from, from being in a, uh, hopefully from be, it really set me down the path. I think, of meditation is what the monastery really did. You know, I've, I've meditated almost every day since that day. So you're going on, you know, 25 years of that, right? Yeah. Um, but the whole meditation thing, you know, I'm not sitting here saying I'm like a Zen Buddhist, but that helps you get to that point of, you know, clearing your mind and not caring so much about the minutia. Okay, I bought fucking soybeans today and they went down five points. You know what I mean? In the big picture, does that really matter that much? You know, right. so I think that's really what that monastery experience did for me more than anything else was it set me down the path of meditation for my whole life. So that was good. 
Yeah. Yeah. No. And I, uh, I, I second that. I'd probably say meditation is probably been one of the biggest, uh, biggest, uh, uh what's the word? Uh, it, it, it just, it, it's life changer. life changer. Correct. Yeah. It's a life changer. No, uh, yeah. Cause I was, no, I'm glad we went down this path because I, I was going to ask you, but it seems like, uh, you're probably going to agree with me. Uh, I've always had a thought and I know others do as well that using the market, well, not using the markets, but the markets will reveal to you who you are. Uh, almost uh, the mark, you know, becoming a trader is, is a means for self-discovery. Uh, you've noted that you've noticed this throughout your journey. There's no question. There's no question. It magnifies everything, you know, that whole fear, greed thing that people talk about, right. Um, that drives your decision-making, um, it magnifies all that because there's a there's a measurable way to do it, right? Which is your PNL. It measures every day, right? Yeah. Um, people can have opinions on things all the time, and like we talked about before, they they very rarely change their opinion. They'll figure out a million ways to justify their opinion, no matter what, right? You look at how politics are nowadays, and I'm not going to take a side, but you know, you look at how people are in politics, right? Mm-hmm. You love Trump, you hate Trump. You'll justify it one way or the other. You know what I mean? And I have friends on both sides of the fence with that, right? I have close friends and family that are, none of my family's on both sides, but all my family's on one side. But I have close friends that are on both sides of the fence of that. And I listen to them and I can hear both of their arguments, right? But they never change their mind. It doesn't matter. They will always find a way to justify their opinion, right? So you can do that all day. No one's going to, at least not yet, no one's going to kill you for doing that. But if you do that in the markets, man, the market is going to either kill you or you're going to learn how to change your mind, right? Or you're going to learn how to start admitting you're wrong or you're going to be broke and you're not going to trade anymore, which is, you know, that's a way to do it too. Just quit trading. Oh, the markets are stupid. You hear people say that all the time or too, right? Markets are fucking stupid. I'm not getting involved with that shit. Oh, so in other words, you freaking lost a lot of money, right? No one that made a million dollars thinks the market's stupid, right? So, you know, that's the thing about the market is it, 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 it really, it magnifies all these emotions so much that it helps you if you want to be successful at it. It helps you start to get a grip and people are always getting mad at me for like being neutral everything, right? They get into these arguments and like, I'm neutral everything. Jack Schwager got mad at me. He's like, you got to have an opinion on something. He's like, come on, you got to have an opinion on something. And I'm like, look, and at the same time, people will tell you, my brother, my wife will tell you I'm the most opinionated person in the world, right? But truthfully, you have to try to train yourself to not have an opinion because, if you do, the market will rail you, man, you know? And if what you want to do is the market, then you better train yourself to not have very strong opinions or at least be able to admit you're wrong. Otherwise, you're dead. Yeah, absolutely. You know, be a lawyer. You want to have strong opinions, be a lawyer. Right. You know? Don't right. be a trader. You, you might be f- familiar with him, but one of the other traders uh, profiled in the book, he was the first one, uh, Peter Brandt. Uh-huh. Um, what was what was uh, like the because you know how you were dubbed the contrarian? He his thing was like uh, weak, strong opinions, weakly held. Right. I, I thought that was such a, a good way to uh, you know approach markets or you know have strong opinions, strong convictions, but be malleable, be willing to you know. I'm wrong. No, that's wrong. right. And, and I find when I make the most money, um, my best return periods are when my system is lined up for something, um, and my opinion is that that's what's going to happen. You know. Because then there it is, right? Now my system can tell me to do it. And I also agree with it. So now I can kind of go like now, okay, my system can tell me to short all these commodities. I haven't agreed with it, right? 
So I've only lost a little bit of money because I haven't agreed with it, right? So I've kept it small. Um, but yeah, strong opinions, weekly held. I think that makes sense. Meaning, yeah, have a strong opinion, go with it. But if it's wrong, just get the hell out. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I enjoyed that a lot. So uh, the, it, we'll wrap it up here shortly. I just kind of got some, uh, some miscellaneous type of questions. How was the whole interview process with Jack? Uh, Cause I know this kind of, I don't know if this happened before COVID or right as COVID was happening. Do you guys do it over zoom or you guys talk in person? I, um, when he first contacted me, I was going to a wedding um, like two weeks later in, um, in Boulder. Mm-hmm. is where he lived this was pre-corona this was over thanksgiving actually in i guess 2019 okay um so i said look i'm gonna be in boulder like in two weeks so why don't i stop by we'll have lunch or something like that which is what we did and i sat with him for like you know like we did an hour maybe hour and a half kind of thing it was kind of bullshit um and then i kept telling him i didn't really want to be in the book and then when i finally decided to be in the book yeah we did a little bit of zoom we okay. did like two different Zoom sessions and maybe like an hour and a half each. Yeah, yeah. Now, the, how, uh, I mean, obviously, I, I'm pretty sure you had like, uh, he was, he was going to let you like read over it first for, for approval. How, how much like did he like leave out? Was that almost kind of the exact conversation? Was, uh, what was that like? No, he did a really good job with that. It was pretty much the exact conversation. Yeah. Okay, nice. Awesome. Um, there were some things, and, I, and he sent it to me first and I read through it. And there were some things I actually wanted to add to it that I thought added to the story. But yeah. he didn't add it. He's like, you know, I already wrote it and I wrote it in a way that it flows and I wouldn't know where to stick that in, that, that it would flow. So whatever. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I, I want to ask you about, I, I thought this, um, uh, the, the hustle inside of you or just, just, just where your mind went and how you did this. Right. Cause the, the time you took off from trading, you actually, you bought a farm, you rented it out to uh, pot growers no, I bought a farm and then I got into the pot business where I was buying places out and renting them out. The pot. Oh, so it was nothing to do with my farm. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. I lived on a farm, but I, that had nothing to do with the pot business. Oh, I got you. Well, so, 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 but where did that idea come with? Obviously uh, you, you saw an edge, you saw an opportunity, uh, but how did this, how did this come about? The whole pot business you mean? Yeah. Yeah. The whole pot, yeah. I went, uh, with a buddy of mine to, um, we took a road trip in the summer, one summer, maybe 2013 or 14, I want to say. Um, and we took a road trip out to Montana for a few weeks. Um, and we met a kid. Uh, I mean, quite frankly, we were looking to buy some pot. And we met this kid and he's like, um, he's like, yeah, meet me at my house at like whatever, five o'clock or whatever, when I get off of work. And I was getting an oil change. And I asked the kid that was changing my oil if he knew anywhere I could like get a bag of weed or something. Yeah. yeah 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 meet me you know at five o'clock after work and we go out to this house and this kid's got a barn out there and he's growing pot okay a barn full of pot i'd never seen that like this is 2013 it's different than now this is when that whole thing was like really just starting right yeah. Yeah. and i was never like out in california like on pot farming i'd never seen that and you know in high school i was kind of a pothead so um well, i went in this barn i'm like this is the coolest thing i've ever seen man i'm like this is legal and he's like, yeah, it's legal, man. Just blah, 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 blah. We're driving back from Montana. We drove all the way up. We're driving back. And I kept saying to this guy, I'm like, dude, I'm starting a pot farm, man. That's freaking awesome. You can think about how much money must be you be able to make in this right now. Nobody's doing it. Maybe, you know what I mean? You got to be crazy to do it, right? So I looked and it just turned out Rhode Island, which was, you know, 90 minutes from my house, had legalized pot growing going on. Mm-hmm. Um, 
with certain restrictions. So, you know, I, I kind of moved up here and, and, and started that. And then what I found out, you know, and what I ended up growing into was that a lot of people wanted to do it and a lot of people didn't have the money to do it. And I knew because I, I did it myself first for six months or so, okay. I knew what the money was. I knew the returns these people could get, you know, doing it, which were ridiculous, right? You're talking about, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of percent a year on your money. Mm. Um, so I figured I could finance them and, you know, and we could all make money. And that's, that's kind of what I did. I, there were certain things that I didn't see, like in order to get those returns, you have to get off the fucking crack pipe and do some work, which a lot of these guys did want to do. You know what I mean? You can't sit there and smoke pot all freaking day. You know what I mean? And expect to run a business. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, that's why you need me to lend you the money to do this because all you want to do is smoke pot all day. So I kind of had to crack the whip on some of these freaking kids a little bit, which wasn't so fun, you know? Sure. Um, and, but again, tons of lessons learned. You know what I mean? There's a, um, tons of experience. I could write a fuck. I, I could write a, a movie about that. I could write a TV show about that experience, you know, because of all the, crazy people involved and all the weird situations that I got into. But, you know, fortunately the, um, the profit margin was so big mm -hmm. that you could make a lot of mistakes and still walk away with profit. So. Yeah. Interesting. And then you, uh, you eventually came to missing trading, right? You, you even described it was, you were, you almost had a def uh, depressed or maybe you were depressed and you weren't really sure. Then it was like, Hey, you, you weren't trading. You weren't doing what you loved. And then, so, yeah, no, that's definitely the case. I was sitting there and uh, I'd never really gone through that before. I thought it was like a midlife crisis. You know, I was probably like 45 years old. I'm like, I must be going through midlife crisis. This must be what they talk about. And I, I couldn't like get out of this like weird depression. I'm like, I've never felt this in my life. I've always been a pretty happy guy. You know, I've never felt this in my life. Um, and then I started trading again and it all went away. So that must have been the answer, you know? Mm-hmm. You have any thoughts uh, on uh, cryptocurrency? I think it's going up. It sure is. Yeah, Bitcoin. All time yeah. highs today. Yeah, and again, you know, I, I base that strictly on what everybody's saying. You know what I mean? You had a bunch of people when the first wave hit, and and Bitcoin went to like nineteen, whatever, and then it went down to three, right? So now, all of a sudden, it goes back to twenty. Which, if it was no good, it never would have gotten there to begin with, right? right. But and everybody wants to sell it now at 20 because, oh, they should have sold it the first time when it was at 20. They didn't. So now they all want to sell it here. One of the guys on, on Fast Money who runs a Bitcoin fund was on there last week saying that he now he has been selling into this rally and he now owns the least amount in his fund that he's owned in three years. I'm like, dude, don't do it, man. You know what I mean? This is your this is your gold mine and you're going to blow it. You're going to blow your gold mine. How could you run a Bitcoin fund and not be long Bitcoin? You know, like I'm sure he's long, you know what I mean? But he probably did like, he sold out of his Bitcoin and he bought like whatever some of the other crap coins that haven't gone up as much. The same stupid thing that people do in the stock market, right? Yeah. Like, oh, I'm going to get out of my winners and I'm going to buy the losers because they're going to catch up, right? Yeah. Well, probably not. You know what I mean? So that's what he was saying he was doing, right? He's, getting, he's like, there's the least amount of Bitcoin we've owned. And we're buying like whatever they are, Ripple or, you know, whatever these other things yeah. are. Right? And I'm just like, oh, man, Bitcoin is going to be $30,000 before anybody even fucking knows what happened. Right. Yeah. That's what I think. Yeah. So I did buy, buy some of that Bitcoin trust, whatever the hell it is. Oh, uh, be uh, a bit W. Yeah. yeah. I, and I just did it because 
this guy has a on, on CNBC has a history of being phenomenally wrong about things. And uh, if he runs a Bitcoin fund and he has the least amount of Bitcoin as it's pumping up against an all-time high, then I, I got to be long some Bitcoin. For sure. Oh, I, I love that. I love that. I mean, this thing, this thing, Jason's been going up like it's been minimum up twenty five percent every day. Uh, Bit W. It is. We have a few of us. I don't know what's up now, but um, I just exited earlier this morning. But few people, a few people in our room, man, we've been killing it on that, man. As uh, and yeah, I, I think it's good to hear that this guy. It's funny. It never fails with these uh, guys on CNBC. That's that, that's hilarious. But um, I mean, that particular guy has been. Uh, he's been a gold mine. Yeah. You know, he was bear. The one thing I love to quote with him was he's been bearish the stock market since whenever, you know, I mean, probably 2008 or whatever. Right. Yeah. yeah. He's bearish. He's always bearish. Always bearish. When Corona first hit and the market first started to go down before it went down a lot, it had like one week where it went down and he was like, okay, you know, and he's always bearish the stock market. He's like, so if you're going to be bearish the stock market here, which I think you should be, you know, what you want to own is Bitcoin and you want to own the, the junior gold miners, JNUG. They know, yeah. That was his two calls. So over the next like two months, the stock market went down like 33%. Bitcoin went down like 50. And JNUG went down 95. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Like even when you're right, you're wrong. You know, it's like one of these people, right? And it's because he's overthinking. People want to think, right? Even Jack Schwager says that to me. After all the people that Jack Schwager has interviewed about trading and this and that and everything, and then he's talking, he's like, what do you think about this trade? And he goes into this whole trade about like the fundamental of the Euro dollar versus the whatever. I'm like, dude, there you go thinking again. Yeah. You know, like you, you're thinking too much. Everybody wants to be rewarded for being smart, you know? Right. But <laughs> are you really that smart? Everybody thinks they're smart. I think I'm smart. Do you think you're smart? We all think we're smart, right? But you better be smarter than somebody. Might, I always say somebody might be the single smartest person out there. But if you're going to make money in the market by being smart like that, you have to be smarter than everybody combined because yeah. the price of an asset is everybody combined, right? Yeah, no one's yeah. smarter than everybody combined. So if you think you're going to make money doing that, you've got another thing coming to you. Uh, you do. You do. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as you could probably gather, Jason, I, I'm, I'm, I'm real big into you know, psychology and philosophy, et cetera. And um, one of my favorite authors, uh, Robert Greene, he had this quote I was just reading the other day uh, that the, the brain, like we have, we have a tendency, like we, the, one of the biggest weaknesses the human brain has is a need for certainty. And I think that's, that's going to boil down to a lot of these people's uh, issues is just the need for certainty. And you have, you have to come, you got to uh, come to the grips. I have a great quote on certainty. Yeah. Hold on. Let me find it. JJ, uh, uh, did we lose you for a second, Jay? No, no, no. Uh, you know what? My internet, no, my, I don't know. I think the moose is hitting the power pole because the internet connection keeps knocking in and out. So I'm here though. All right. All right. What you got, Jason? It says like certainty. Ah, I got to find, just hold on one second. I posted it like on my like Facebook or something like You're not, you're not on Twitter, are you, Jason? No. That might, that might be a good, so like contrarian indicator source. I'm not sure. I know. I mean, I troll. Uh, I troll LinkedIn all day. Yeah. Am I also going to troll Twitter? I mean, how many things can I troll? Uncertainty is an uncomfortable position, but certainty is an absurd one. Mm. Right. So you know, certain uncertainty is uncomfortable. I get it, but certainty is ridiculous. Right. right. You're certain of anything? That's absurd. And that was Voltaire that said that, by the way. Oh, Voltaire. Yeah. Absolutely. But right down to your point, right? It's right to your point. People want to be certain, you know? But yeah. 
not is, is anything really certain mm. jason you're you're a, a well-read man what, what are you reading right now um let me look i'm not reading anything i spend all my free time now trying to learn how to play guitar oh yeah so i'm reading uh guitar books okay that's all i read now my days is guitar books i'm thinking about putting a web page together mm -hmm. so i'm reading a little bit about that too okay um, I, i'm not really sure but i'm thinking about putting like a i don't know how to do it you know nor do i have the energy to do it but i have a friend that wants me to do it with him and i'm thinking what i'm going to do is maybe put together a trading training series mm. Mm -hmm. you know, I, the guy I take guitar lessons from does it and I was going to model it after him you know instead of doing guitar lessons do like trading lessons right and he gives it away all for Ooh. free um, it's a free web page but and then I think he makes a lot of money because he puts the videos on YouTube and I think it's like millions of looks on YouTube and maybe he makes money that way I, I don't really know you know um, it would be like a five year project to get that done so I, I've been kind of looking I've been reading stuff about that recently too mm -hmm. what, I, don't, I don't know if i have it in me what, what other hobbies do you have uh, outside of uh, guitar playing that's it man that's it i sit in this chair 18 hours a day yeah um and watch these stupid freaking markets tick up and down um <laughs> and i play guitar and uh i used to golf i don't anymore i used to like play tennis and golf and play sports i don't do any of that shit anymore mm -hmm. um I just spent time with my wife. I have a great wife now. Yeah. And I went through 15 years where I had a horrible wife. So it makes you appreciate the fact that you actually have a great wife. You know, I like to spend time with her. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> that's, pretty, that's pretty much all I do. And then travel. I like to travel. So Yeah. And, that, and that's, and this is going to be the last thing uh, leads into the last thing I wanted to ask you about, you know, you're a well-traveled man, a lot of different places. You, you lived in Japan and the, like the consensus from the people that I have talked to, when I asked them about their favorite place, even several people on this podcast, uh, Japan is very uh, frequent. Um, do you feel the same or if not, what's, what's your favorite place? I mean, Japan's a cool place. Uh, my favorite place is Rhode Island. <laughs> honestly, right yeah. where I'm at. Um, nice. My, what are you in Providence? Are you... No, I'm in Charlestown. Charlestown. Okay. We're in the country. We're in the country, man. Okay. We're, yeah. we're on the beach. Charlestown has as nice beaches as the Hamptons have, except that okay. we get about one one hundredth of the amount of people here. And like the, the house that you could buy here for seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars would cost you six million dollars in the Hamptons. Mm. I shouldn't wow. even say this because it's it's one of the most greatest secrets there is. But <laughs> I guess other than that, my favorite place to go for a vacation really is like Kauai. The North Shore of Kauai is probably my favorite place to go on Earth if I'm going somewhere. Beautiful, beautiful. I don't know if you've ever been there, but people are in Hawaii in 87. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the North Shore of Kauai is awesome. Um, other than that, I like to go to new places. That's really my big thing. You know, I like to find a place that I haven't been. I haven't been to New Zealand yet. I'm dying to get there. Mm -hmm. um, I have a little bit of a problem with traveling because of when I lived in Asia, I used to travel a lot. Um, and I got in this habit, like I used to quit my job when I got my bonus in the first second <laughs> week of January. <laughs> I'd take another job for like April and I'd go away for two months. Um, so I got in the habit of when I go someplace, I get to spend like a month or two there. Oh, uh, nice. It's very hard for me to go somewhere for a week, you know, because of that. Um, plus, who the hell is going to go to New Zealand for a week? It takes you a week to get there, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I like to try. I like to go to a new place. We went to Africa, South Africa. Um, 
two summers ago with the kids. And I really like to take the kids places. You know, I like to expose them to that. You know, me, it's like, I feel like I'm old and I've done most of the things I'm going to do. I'm just happy to sit here and wait until I die one day in front of these screens. Um, but, you know, when you have kids, it's like you really want to expose them to other things. So I like to take my kids places. That's yeah. really like my, my favorite thing to do. Excellent. I, I can't imagine the water is ever warm, you know, because I'm in Florida, Jason. You know, I could go to the beach like now and the water's good. Even in the summertime there, the water can't be nice. In Rhode Island. In the summertime, the water is nice. It is, yeah. I don't know if you surf, but Rhode Island probably has the best surf on the wet on the East Coast. Do they really? Top, definitely top five. My son surfs. Kids surf almost every freaking day. He wakes up before school. He goes and surfs. I mean, I got some really good surf here. It's not, you know, it's not pipeline or anything like that. <laughs> but um, they've got some good surf here. In the summer, it's warm. He surfs. They say surfing in Rhode Island is a winter sport. Because, you know, they all put on their wetsuits because this is when the storms come up, you know, like now, you know, they're all surfing, right? Yeah. Um, but in the summer, yeah, we go in the ocean. My wife goes in the ocean every single day in the summer, goes down the ocean and jumps in. It's probably yeah. from like May until August is all you get. Right, right. Definitely right. not South Florida. Yeah. We don't have the crowds in South Florida either. I mean, I was in South Florida last December. You can't get from Palm Beach to Miami. That takes like a four hours nowadays, right? Traffic's crazy. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Crazy what's going on down there. Yeah, it's nuts. It's nuts. But yeah, yeah, no, I'm, I'm a pussy now, Jason. I can't take the cold, man. I'm a full, full uh, Floridian, full blown now. I mean, I can't either. I'm not, I'm not active anyway. But when I lived in Westport, I lived right on the beach of Westport. I can tell you right now, I didn't, we lived there for six years. I didn't go in the water once, not once wow. in six years. And I looked at it yeah. all day from my window. I didn't go in the water once. And then that was. <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's not my thing, man. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And meanwhile, uh, this guy, my co-host, he lives in like regularly, what, negative 20 degrees? And that's oh, la yesterday it was minus 33. Yeah, yeah but he gets free health care. So. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, Trade-offs. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so I think with that, that's going to conclude today's episode cool. of Confessions of a Market Maker. If you guys enjoyed the show, please rate and review it for us. If you guys would like to learn market auction theory, Market Profile, if you trade futures, trade equities, and or options, join JJ and I at microefutures.com. Jason, uh, tell the people, I usually tell the guests, you know, let them know where they can find them or anything else they'd like to know. I don't know if you want to be found, um, but, but if you want to tell the listeners anything, we want them to know. I mean, if you want to find me, I'm not really on Twitter, but I do troll uh, LinkedIn a lot. So you can find me on LinkedIn. People I request my LinkedIn stuff ever since that book came out. I get like 200 requests a day, but I accept them all. So, you know, once in a while, I'll post stuff on LinkedIn. Otherwise, what do I want them to know? I don't know, man. It, it, it's a journey. And if you're going to get into trading, you know, you just have to be ready for a lot of disappointment. It, it's difficult. It's a very difficult journey. And the psychological side of it, you know, it's like Yogi Berra, right? 50% mm. knowledge and 90% psychological or whatever the hell he says, right? Yeah. You know, it, it, it's a very, very difficult journey. So just be ready for it, you know? Absolutely. That's what I could say. Absolutely. JJ, pardon words. Thank you very much for being with us. It's uh, refreshing to speak to an older school guy. And, um, you know, really, really uh, enjoyed the uh, the perspective and also really found the humility very refreshing. Thank you very much. It, uh, and I really like what you said about make money over time instead of every time. I think that's, uh, that's a very, very valuable lesson for uh traders to learn and we're always trying to teach people and you know help them in their journey so thank you very much we really appreciate it great thank you
All right. And so for Jason Shapiro, I'm Paulie Walnuts. He's the gorilla of House Street. You stop so. <laughs>